Greetings, Coven, all of you magical beings out there. This is Kelly popping in real quick at the top of the episode to let you know that we are running a supporter survey. It is way past time that the Library Coven gets to know our audience and way past time that we get your feedback about the content that we're making. Click on the link in the show notes to take the Library Coven survey. It shouldn't require more than five to 10 minutes, and we really appreciate it. So please, please take the survey. Okay, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Library Coven, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties discuss mostly wife fantasy through the lens of intersectional feminist criticism. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse, And I'm Kelly. In this episode, we dive back into Justina Ireland's zombie-filled alt-history series with Deathless Divide, which is the sequel to Dread Nation. Jane and Catherine, who are two black women originally trained in the killing arts in order to protect white folks as hired attendants, um, they've just escaped this town of Summerland, which was a gross survivalist enclave in the territory of Kansas. Um, it's just been overrun by the undead, which in this series are called shamblers. So when we pick up with Deathless Divide, we see we have the two protagonists, um, and then they get separated after the town of Nicodemus falls to the Shamblers, thanks to scientific experiments of Gideon Carr, who we saw in the last book also. Eventually, we find our characters in the California Territory, which isn't nearly as idyllic as they previously thought it was going to be. Y'all, the end of the season is quickly approaching. The library coven season, that is. (laughs) Uh, If you have stories you'd like us to talk about next season coming at you in summer of 2021, let us know by reaching out on social media or email. We're looking for all kinds of books, especially disability rep, um, fantasy books, graphic novels. Let us know what you got. Fat rep. Yeah. Queer. All all the rep. (laughs) (laughs) You know. You know us. You know what we like. If you haven't already, you can take a, be- a look back at episode 18, uh, where we discuss the first book in the series, Dread Nation. Initial reactions. Initial reactions. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. All queued up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really enjoyed the first book in this series, um, Dread Nation, but this one felt a little bit more of a slog for me. I think because it turned into a travel story, I got a bit bored halfway through, <laughs> <laughs> as I do. Um, I still really like the characters, but, you know, I'm not a fan of travel stories. So I was kind of like, meh, through the traveling parts. Only really interested when they got places and were doing things. <laughs> not doing things on their way to places. Yes, exactly. What about you? I love the covers of the books. I don't know why I started with that, but I just like love the artwork on this book. I feel like you're leaning up to saying that you hated them. No, no, no. That's like, I know I did feel like that. I love the covers and that's it. No, no, no. Oh my gosh. Well, it's, I'm looking at the cover and so maybe that's why it came into my head. And also I forgot to write down in the script notes what my initial reaction was to this book. So I am starting from scratch here. I would say, hmm, let me look at it and just feel what my initial reaction is. I agree with you that it was a little bit more of a slog. Um, I like the characters. I like the character development. I think it's very realistic. And, and I mean that in like the best sense of the word as in like it was 
you know, it made sense. The character's motivations for things made sense. The way Jane, we see her going down and like spiraling, you know, with her mission to kill Gideon. And yeah, I guess I was like, the last one was just, it, it seemed like very, like almost had a bow tied around it. The mm-hmm. first, the first book in the series. Um, and like, I'm not sad that this was expanded. I think it's like, really good for people who are interested in like historical fiction or zombie reads. Um, but I mean, not my favorite book. I think it almost was like kind of long. So we maybe could have gotten yeah. like, just the rest of it in book one and just had a really long book one. And it could have been a standalone novel without all the traveling to like going to the new town and doing the same thing over as the first town kind of, you know, yeah, wasn't as interesting. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Time to talk about world building in Through the Wardrobe. We're back in the same world as the previous book, post-Civil War U.S., but we see our characters trying to find a safe place to settle down um, where the shamblers slash zombies won't be such a constant threat to them. And so we see them traveling to different areas of the United States. Um, and that was that was kind of interesting to just see like what other places were like and I don't know what the frontier times were like, and I'm glad I wasn't there. <laughs> I think that there's so much. Um, yeah, the, we're definitely in the frontier. So which is the front lines of the U.S. settler colonial project, honestly, because it's like in Kansas when it's not a state yet. And then they're in Jane talks about being in the Colorado Territory and then they go into the California Territory. And I'll talk about this later in One Does Not Simply. But I think that the. I liked the that Ireland um like dug into sorry my dogs are barking (laughs) (laughs) we got cats last time this time we get dogs (laughs) um that you can that like she didn't settle for like the shorthand of just like cowboys and indigenous folks that it was actually like digging into what relationships on the frontier looked like and how much violence there was and how much extraction is there and how um like precarious and like very much in development the areas were at that time like so changing so rapidly which we don't really think about i think like at this time you think about colorado and it's like neoliberal patagonia ski resorts (laughs) north face (laughs) (laughs) um that's so true and i think this book does a good job of showing like kind of like westward expansion that i don't think we i mean we don't see in a lot of novels that we're reading i'm sure if you're reading like john le or whatever you are probably going to see more of that because you know westerns or whatever um but it's not really like a period in time i think we see in a lot of ya novels so it is kind of different in that sense yeah because it is it's like chronological and geographical world building and then there's also you throw in the shambler aspect that makes it kind of like alt history where the shamblers rise at the battle of gettysburg and i'm kind of curious i think it's interesting that they don't um not interesting maybe but it's like i guess because we're not getting an omniscient perspective it makes sense that we don't know why the shamblers like arose or awoke but i'm i still find myself curious because we don't get an explanation for that yeah, I mean, I guess if you can be vaccinated against it, I guess we can see it as some kind of, like, illness almost. But they're coming back from the dead? Like, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question that does not get answered in these books. Wands out. Let's discuss all things magic. 
I was surprised to learn that James Penny doesn't seem to work for Catherine. Um, that was according to Catherine. Like it only seems to work for Jane um, because we see like she has this penny that was like much more played a much more significant role. I feel like in the last book, yes, that kind of alerts her to when there are going to be shamblers about or she's in danger. Um, but it doesn't seem to work for Catherine, which surprised me. So it seems to be a little bit of magic that somehow is tied to Jane. Mm-hmm. And they and Jane said it's hoodoo, right? That it's bewitched. It was bewitched by her mm-hmm. one of the most. Im- her aunt Aggie, Aggie, which seemed like the more important maternal figure in Jane's life than her mom. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, her mom's kind of shit. Oh my god, <laughs> seeing her mom at the end. We'll talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> we um, there wasn't as much like magicness going on in this novel as compared to the last one. I think partly because Jane's not wearing her penny, so we don't see it. Like, like you're saying, it doesn't change temperature and alert her to things. Um, she gives it to Catherine right at some point because she thinks she's when, dead yeah exactly yeah uh-huh. it would have been interesting i know Catherine goes to new orleans again or during that like year and a half that we jump forward and it would have been interesting this i wish we could have seen that time one because i love new orleans but two i think we might have been able to get more magic in that period of time so agreed agreed kind of missed that <laughs> sad the other like little glimmer that we have is jackson's ghost who keeps appearing to jane throughout the throughout deathless divide she had to kill him at the beginning that was unfortunate um they're also called haints in the novel i'd never heard a ghost called a haint had you i don't think so but there is one part i think it's on I think it's actually Catherine talking about the different kinds of haints. And she thought like Jackson was the one was one who was like wa- watching out for Jane, you know? So obviously like there's a common acceptance of the fact that people see ghosts and they talk to people and that's just what happens. And they give you, they're there to accompany you. It seems like Jackson pops up and at times where she's in trouble. So it's kind of like maybe replacing the penny almost, but I don't know. Yeah. And it seems like, like, to make sense that Catherine would accept that as someone who has a lot of experience with voodoo and hoodoo. So, um, of course she accepts it like right away. Blondes <laughs> away. Now we're going to talk about conflict, villains, good and evil in our segment. Get me Kylo Ren. I think Gideon is one of the bigger villains in this story, which was also a little surprising to me. I don't remember if I put this somewhere else in the show notes, but he is experimenting with vaccines on black and native people, um, indigenous people. And I did not really see this coming from the previous novel. So I think that was also something that like, kind of took me out of the book is that we don't really get like, we know that Jackson is like trying to create these vaccines. We didn't, I don't think we realized that he was vaccinating people against their will and, dread nation Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden he's like kind of a love interest of um jane's in dread nation and then in this book he's like the villain and it was just like kind of a quick 180 for me and i was just not expecting it yeah it did jane got very obsessed with gideon um it seemed like really babies really puppies (laughs) really (laughs) and then i so i agree with you that gideon's like the extent of his nefarious intent was not revealed to us until Deathless Divide. Because it also comes up 
they also mentioned kind of in passing that Gideon was when when he didn't have willing volunteers, he was willing to basically purchase or like participate in human trafficking operations and like get mm-hmm. volunteers. And I just think it's important to understand that medicine, like our Western conception of medicine, has always been predicated upon the exploitation of like black and brown bodies always like the gynecology started that way with experiments on enslaved women like lots of these um these like tuskegee you know experiments and stuff like so um this is this wasn't surprising to me at all i was just like oh yeah this trash white guy who believes in science above all things and is willing to sacrifice literally anyone and anything and it's like yeah oh yeah that that sounds familiar maybe because i wrote a dissertation where that like quote-unquote mad scientist trope is very prevalent in the sci-fi that I was reading for that project yeah this is it's just banal you know the banality of evil I think another um point that the novel is trying to make re like good and evil and what happens from that or how we can get mm, push one way push towards one side or the other is with the different technologies that we use and the ones that are most important in the novel it seemed like were walls and guns and they're just like necessary to a certain extent but also it depends on how the people are deploying the technologies you know because we see jane using guns jane and Catherine using guns for different reasons than the you know people who are um kidnapping black children for example to go sell them back into enslavement we also see that like a lot of times these technologies like don't work for them you know like they're building the walls to try and keep out the shamblers and it's not working or it can be um subverted when like gideon took down part of the wall around summerland nicodemus i can't remember the place names but (laughs) which ones were which Mm -hmm. um but like he took down part of the wall so, like, those things don't really work if people are pushing back against them or don't want them to work or, you know. Yeah, they're just all those things. I think these these particular technologies, walls and guns, are only so effective, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And I think that the, the novel is, like, showing the limits of them and how people can still use them for, like, liberatory means. I'm thinking more of the guns than the walls. But, mm-hmm. um, but I get, like, the protection instinct that the wall is there for but it's also very much about exclusion and then when you're talking about it was just like wild to read this book in the middle of the pandemic I don't know how you thought Mm -hmm. because it's like vaccine talk and all of these uh walls and talk about whether or not it keeps diseases out or not and yeah oh my gosh yeah it was a tough time to read this book it might also just like might have contributed to the fact that I didn't enjoy it as much as the other one is because of that and maybe I put that in somewhere else about the vaccine talk but um yeah some of that stuff I was just like I can't right now with this <laughs> yeah I couldn't like find my I found myself like I can't dwell on this like I have to keep mm-hmm. going because it was just yeah. like too real happening in my in our like outside world too yeah exactly Onward, magical friends. Just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, gender, and ability. This is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate. 
Let's start with race. <laughs> I think I, I kind of combined it with class because it seems like they're pretty inextricable. Yeah. So similar to the last book, we see people from many different races interacting in the story. Um, we're seeing more people that we would call Latinx and people speaking Spanish. So the Shamblers are called Casi Muertos, like in Bruja Born, which was super fun. I was like, I know what that means. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and people from many different races are in power depending on where we are in the story. So I found that pretty, pretty interesting. Um, and it was it's always nice to see, but I also do think that has come with some um, um, depictions of different people that maybe were not the best. <laughs> Would you like to elaborate? Yeah, so I think we see like Daniel Redfern is like the one indigenous person we get and he's like not to be trusted and goes back on his word and that sort of thing or like the Chinese people have taken over California and like they're in control and they are not treating other people well, which is a whole other thing on like anti-blackness within Asian cultures, which I think we've talked about in other um, episodes before. And I can link to some stuff about that. But some of the depictions I thought were just like a little bit surface level. And some of them were depictions that I thought were like kind of caricatures of people and kind of depicted um some stereotypes and some racist stereotypes that I was kind of like, Ooh, about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I also was, you know, thinking, thinking through writing the, getting ready for recording. Um, I was just like, okay, so we don't have that many substantive indigenous, like fleshed out indigenous characters in the story. And I thought Daniel Redfern was the only one. And then I went back and relooked and Callie is actually black and indigenous. Oh, Mix- right. Yeah. Be- yeah. Um, so, but I didn't remember that until I was going back and looking for it. So like, um, I think it's, you know, just a good historical reminder that, um, that black and indigenous people have a very like a nuanced and complicated history that goes, you know, obviously back to when, you know, and people stolen from the African continent were brought here and Mm then, um, indigenous folks were like displaced, but some mm-hmm. some indigenous groups uh, enslave black people, the Cherokee, mm-hmm. for example, for instance. And so there's this legacy of the freedmen. Um, and I also think it's this this character, like the black indigenous um, character. Like I think it's like a um, a combination that we don't think about a lot of the time, or like like a like an ethnic racial combination that we don't think about a lot of the time. But there's actually like a really large number of um, black and indigenous folks, especially in North Carolina, the Lumbee, which is not a federally recognized tribe, but it is a state recognized tribe. So um, I don't know, just this, this other character like came to mind when you're talking about how, you know, maybe like the reductive ways that some of these non-black characters were, um, you know, how they were developed. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And I think also we can like look at like when you think of black indigenous people, um, we can see sometimes like even the anti-blackness in those communities. So I think like looking at the way like Rebecca Rowanhorse was treated as a black indigenous person um, by other indigenous authors. um, And that can be kind of frustrating to see like both of those groups just like kind of boiled down to these caricatures in this story. Um, And maybe that's also part of the reason I felt like a little 
meh about this book is that like some of the ethnic groups were just like not treated with like nuance or yeah. with like the care that I feel they deserved. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think that you hit the nail on the head with that for sure. Um, we also see that slavery is being upheld in the South by saying the black people that had been bitten or had been bitten and are immune to shamblers, but are no longer considered people once they're bitten. And I was just like, of fucking course. <laughs> of uh, fucking course. Any any and all reason for white folks to maintain the cruel fiction of whiteness. Just an embarrassing people. <laughs> it, for real. For real, though. Um, I think... Pa- shall I read this quote on page 116? You shall. I found the part that describes that, like, they actually go into how this works legally, quote-unquote. And it's like, mm, all of your laws are literally made up and they're white supremacist as fuck. So could you just not? make up new laws. Exactly. <laughs> could we just not? Could we just do it differently? Okay. So here is, this is on page 115 and 116. All right. Mm. Are you blocking your mic? No, I'm blocking your camera. Okay. I'm blocking the I camera. Like, I, can't see. <laughs> I was like, Kelly, we're not going to be able to hear you. <laughs> I am talking into the mic, but Jesse cannot see me. <laughs> <laughs> she has to look at the beautiful cover of this book while I read it. Um, back in Summerland, my friend Ida told me how criminals had, and, quote, bitten, ne- I don't think I can say this word. Negroes? Yes. This is oh, a question I was having. Oh, I'm, you know, obviously I can't speak for obviously. You know, all black people. Obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not really sure. I feel like you couldn't call someone like a Negro in modern day times, but it's also like the United Negro College Fund. So I don't think it's a bad word, but I could also be wrong. I just feel like a kind of way as a white person saying it mm-hmm. because it's like an, an anachronistic or it's like a, a term that harkens back to a specific time. Mm-hmm. Right. So I get that it's, I, it just, I put this actually at the end in real talk and I was like, I don't. I feel like I can read it, obviously, but like I'm, mm-hmm. I don't think I can say it out loud. I don't right. know. It's just we can talk about it in real talk. We'll talk about you can it say it now. <laughs> okay, it's a quote. Okay, <laughs> all right. Be careful with your quotes, though. If you start like saying some other words, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then ooh, no. <laughs> all right. Oh, I just feel weird about it. Okay, back in Summerland, my friend Ida told me how criminals and bitten Negroes have no rights under the 13th Amendment and could be sold into a version of servitude that persisted down in the South. The reasoning went that, once bitten, a body is no longer human and thus had no rights. Combined with the accepted wisdom that Negroes had some sort of natural resistance to the bite of a shambler, it created a situation where Negroes could legally remain in the state of bitten but unchanged in perpetuity and thus be sold like any property. It made no ma- it made no matter that wow, it made no matter that there was no evidence a colored person was any more likely to survive the bite of the dead than a white one. It was convenient lie that no one much bothered to debunk, especially when it meant that the person could lie about colored folks getting bitten and make a quick buck on the open market down in the lost states. Most white folks are eager to believe the worst about us, anything to make us seem less like people. Was that fun? <laughs> <laughs> no you should have just typed it all up so i could read it yeah i should have just been like read page 115 to 116 <laughs> um go on sorry i don't it's just it, it i like how um ireland is taking the zombie trope and showing the fiction of race and illegality and property you know and is using that to be like 
look at how made up this is. Um, I think that that is well done. Yeah. She did do a good job with, with that. And um, it's interesting to see how like the different groups of people are treated. So it, in that way, maybe the book is realistic and I shouldn't like put so much like get so much in my head about how they're written because maybe that's how they were treated, but it was, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I think I started having a harder time when we got to California and we were seeing mm-hmm. um, Chinese people and uh, Mexican folks, Chicano. Yeah, they, Lat- I, I think so. They called them like Californios and I'm like, I don't really, that's not a term I had heard before mm-hmm. um but so i don't know i also don't know if it's the people who are native to california i think that they said it's a it was a a mix between the spanish colonizers and that had um like mixed with people from the cal from what is now called california and then mm-hmm. slash like there was also genociding so okay not that many native folks left mm-hmm or at least that's what that made it seem like. But at, and, and at the same time, I was just like, if there was, if this is the beginning of settler expansion in the West, then it feels like there should be way more indigenous folks around. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know, because I guess maybe that is like, maybe that's showing like the way that the world might have gone on. Right. I mean, I guess, I mean, thinking about my limited knowledge of history, I guess as people expanded West, as you know the colonists expanded west they were murdering um indigenous people and you know forcing them to onto reservations so that might also be why we saw less indigenous people like maybe Mm -hmm. we're already past that time but i also don't know like i guess a lot of that stuff probably did happen pre-civil war Mm -hmm. i'm not sure yeah a lot of that was pre-civil war so i don't know i i think that um if people who are listening or reading want to know more, I would definitely recommend um, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. And then also the Red Nation podcast is just like a fucking wealth of knowledge. I listen to that like every episode and it's really good. Some want to talk about gender? Oh, sorry. Did you have something else? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Let's talk okay. about gender. Um. Okay, I have to start with this because at the beginning of the book, I was already like annoyed, but Jackson's expectations of a wife that she like rear his children and like cook for him and take care of his sister. And I'm like, bro, I'm glad he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) You're not getting that in this life or the next. And I'm glad. (laughs) I was like, ugh. I thought you were okay before. And now I'm like, no, thank you. Yeah, it didn't. It. Like having that whole situation go down made me feel less bad for him when he died. And I was like, Jane, you're better off. Right? Like, I feel bad for his little sister, but I'm also like, bro, she's your sister, not like your future wife's sister. Like, you take care of her. She's your responsibility. Don't put that on someone else. Ugh. Mm. Rude. Yeah. <laughs> Just like very hetero, patriarchal gender norms. Yeah. Nope. Yeah, for sure not here for it uh i think gideon carr is a good person to talk about in this uh section because man whiteness patriarchy dedication to science have just like reduced his capacity to think 
like boldly and beyond the confines of the systems and the ideologies that he was brought up in that like maintain his own supremacy and which thereby, you know, by proxy means that other gives him like justify is like a way for him to justify that these other people's lives don't matter. And then he can experiment on them and whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, Jane on page 131 says, has a quote that I think describes him pretty well. His brain has only been taught to think about problems one way. He doesn't understand that sometimes it takes a bold solution to solve a problem. One folks ain't expecting like a well-placed bullet. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate that. Of course I do. <laughs> yeah. Gideon was like just an all around problematic character in like every way you could think of. And I wasn't expecting it. He seemed fine last book, but I guess may- sometimes people just show who they really are. It takes a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then wasn't it Toni Morrison said when people show you who they really are, believe them? Yeah, I think it was Toni Morrison that I'm not sure, but I have heard that quote before. <laughs> oh, love that. It's a, like a that's an evergreen quote for sure. It really is. <laughs> I also want to talk a little bit about Miss Duncan, who was one of the teachers at Miss Preston's, a white woman, right? So white uh, Miss Duncan is just like white feminism incarnate when they're at, they like meet back up when they go to the Nicodemus after Summerland falls. And that's when like they find Sue and Ida and these other people from Miss Preston's and Miss Duncan is just like really shows that in your actions, like you say, people show you who they really are. Believe them, you know, like actual sol- lacking any actual solidarity with people of color in her, like in the ways that she moves about her life. Sue says, I think all this time ain't, all this time she ain't been any better than the rest of them. Just a bit nicer about hating us. It's page 216. And it's just, oh man, white tears, brown scars are a real thing. And this is just something that I'm like always trying to keep present for myself. Yeah. Also, it's really fun to watch you, like listen to you reading the Southern <laughs> dialect. <laughs> you read it then. Because I, <laughs> I can like whatever it's fine i can hear it in a southern accent and then your non-southern accent says it i'm like that doesn't sound like, correct no it really doesn't <laughs> you tell i was like stumbling over it i'm like i don't know how to do uh, this. over the word ain't <laughs> ain't like what is this word <laughs> um i think this is also a good segment to talk about sue really quickly because yeah. sue just kind of wants to like settle down and get married and like have a family and no one gives her shit for her gives her shit for it and i kind of appreciated that people like throughout the story that like all of the Miss Preston's girls like were kind of um, supportive of whatever lifestyle like one person chose over another Um, because I kind of appreciated that because I feel like sometimes people can be kind of like weird and shitty if someone just like does just want to get married and have kids as if it's like because it's like what's normal that it's bad but I'm also like some people just want to do that and like we should let them do what they want because they're also a person making their own decisions (laughs) right we should like less control more community more care yeah also that's not to say that like you know this isn't like hetero bullshit like anti-hetero rhetoric or something like that's bullshit (laughs) like (laughs) because it's the dominant culture like we don't yeah i don't believe that like how reverse racism doesn't work doesn't exactly (laughs) yes exactly that's what i'm saying i mean like like that's not a thing but i'm just saying it's it's nice to see that like everyone was respectful of how people wanted to live their lives (laughs) yes yes (laughs) 
so much coloniality that's like all tied up in this entire novel obviously very much yeah um the main territories that we see are well like the ge- geographies that we see are um kansas which was summerland um so the plains region so-called kansas now and then california uh settler colonialism up front and personal this is something i've been interrogating a lot more um Especially for like, I don't know why, but I'm doing, I've been like thinking about whiteness and settler identity and like, it even led me to watching some episodes of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman (laughs) for research people. I don't know what that is. It's like white feminism settler trash. Um, Oh. It's like about a frontier doctor who works in in, um, Colorado. But because she- Like Little Prowse on the Prairie. I never read that book, but I- heard it's similar <laughs> neither did i i didn't read that one oh, okay. either um oh, okay. looks like she's a white woman and is sad that white men treat her like trash in boston and so she's like i'll come out to the colorado territory and make my way and, treat, and it's just like indigenous people like trash yeah and uh, just the like i don't even know like so many thoughts are swirling i don't even i have more sounds <laughs> <laughs> um so we have like what going back to the book not Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. <laughs> we have white and non-white settlers, black and Chinese arrivants. Um, I've heard the term arrivant used in for like someone who came but didn't wasn't like didn't choose to come. I don't know. Like I've, I've heard it in some of the theoretical texts I've read. I'll try and track down where I found it. Um, but I, there wasn't very much. Um, nuance to the immigration side of the conversation about the folks from China. So that's like one thing, which we've mentioned kind of. Um, And I think at the same time, Ireland does do a lot of work to nuance all these different like colonial and then like racial and ethnic relations. Um, She really shows that America, this idea of America is predicated upon anti-blackness. And we see that colorism that manifests in cultures across the world. Um, the cheap immigrant labor when it can't be extracted for free, and then also the erasure of the original stewards of the land, indigenous peoples. So I, um, it's like a com- really complicated scenario to try and like wrap up in a novel and have it only, like be the world building aspect of it, but it is also impacting everyone's relationships. Yeah. So anyway, I yeah. don't know what you think. Yeah, there's just a lot going on here with that in California. Um, like you said, like the anti-blackness, like the black people are put in like this different. I mean, it's like ghettoized. Yeah. You know, they're put in like terrible um, living situations. They're all living together. They're making less money. And then in, in this story, at least the Chinese are in control. And it's like one of the parts of the story that I thought was not written very well, because I think in all actuality, like the Chinese were not treated very well in California when they came to right. work, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think there's a book that I had to read for class. I think it's, it was called like a different world for young people. And I'll put it in the show notes, but it kind of talks about like the different labor movements and like how labor worked within different ethnic groups in the United States as like time went on, um, especially in those early times when like people from Japan and China were coming to the United States um, and working in like California and Hawaii um and how like they were treated and i don't think that was done very well in this book because 
they I'm, like while I think they were treated better than black people, they were not in control. <laughs> they weren't like running this the California. <laughs> so that part I thought was like a little like could have been done better mm-hmm. or differently. Yeah. Yeah. It's also fictional, but because there's so many historical ties in the book, I just thought it could have been done different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it didn't make it clear like like obviously the shamblers are a fictional aspect, but then it's kind of up to um it isn't necessarily clear how much of it is fiction and how much of it is woven from like historical fact. Exactly. Let's talk about ability, body, minds, etc. Um, after Jane gets bitten, she loses an, loses an arm. So we're kind of, um, she's learning how to live her, her life as a disabled person. And she is just thriving. Um, super badass like she's like i'll just learn a new weapon it'll be fine (laughs) this is this is it now okay great we're moving on yeah she does get a new arm at the end which was kind of cool to see like how they might like do prosthetics in the past i don't know if that was like realistic probably not but i just made me for some reason it made me think of iron man (laughs) yeah i i didn't really like the arm at the end I was like oh, she okay. was doing fine with her one arm you know and that's true you know it didn't make it seem like she needed a pr- like she didn't she didn't really say like oh I wish I had my arm or anything like that like she didn't really seem to express um Starbuck really um <laughs> <laughs> there's gonna be lots of wolves in this episode sorry everyone um, fine. <laughs> and I thought that like the disablement also added to the mythology around her. Like it, it contributes to this like hardened frontier bounty hunter countenance that she's got going on. This like whole story that people have built around her um, as the devil's bride and also called the devil's bitch. Right. I think I heard it both I think ways. So. Um, it's a psych quote. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, and psych, they're always like, I've heard it both ways. <laughs> when they're super wrong. I've heard it both ways. <laughs> well, we did actually hear it both ways in this book. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right in that, like, part of the mythology and what makes her, is supposed to make her terrifying is her disability, yeah. which also is not very good. <laughs> no. And then neither, but neither is the, like, miracle prosthetic mm-hmm. at the end, you know? Yeah. So, anyway. I guess maybe we're just realizing that a lot of parts of this book weren't, wasn't, wasn't as well done as we wished <laughs> as we're as we're talking it's fine we'll talk about it it's good yeah <laughs> i mean we mentioned earlier on but like this whole question of immunity and contagion especially like right now in the middle of i mean we're recording this at the end of january 2021 so still full pandemic um covid19 pandemic there's just there's I don't, don't even know where to begin with this because like with the zomb- anytime there's zombies, you're talking about contagion. And then we have like the vaccine and the immunity and whether or not it actually makes you immune or if it just like makes you makes the shamblers not want to eat you as hard. Yeah. Which is also kind of funny in these times because I feel like I remember seeing things on the Internet like in the early days of COVID about how like black people were <laughs> immune. And I'm just, now that I'm thinking about that in conjunction with this book, and I'm like, is that something they always say about us? Like, is that the norm? Medical I have racism, no idea. Definitely, like thinking that. No, not not the medical community. I think it was like you know, fucking like QAnon people. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, 
Um, but I'm just wondering if this is always a thing. Well, connecting <laughs> the racialized body to disease, definitely mm-hmm. always a thing. That's the technique yeah. of white empire for sure. Um, even though we're the white empire is the one that spreads the disease most of the time. Fucking whites, man. <laughs> Fucking white people. <laughs> um, there's a quote on page 457 that I thought was relevant to this whole conversation. Um, talking about like transmission of a disease. There's more than enough blame to go around once people get to speculating. And we just see a lot of the racism and xenophobia IRL with COVID-19 especially. Um, but also with things like Zika virus or Ebola. And I mean, no one's talking about the terrible shit that comes from the U.S. and goes everywhere else. Like, I don't know, our bombs? Yeah. <laughs> or I'm sure we got other stuff we're spreading out there. Yeah, I'm sure. You know. But it's just, I, um, this book definitely provides... I was like, well, I can't ignore my reality right now. This book is making me confront it. I know, which is which is also maybe not the best time to read this. But I didn't know this is what it was going to turn me into. Either. <laughs> I thought it was. Um, mm, I'm interesting. Sure, interesting. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> um, just like the the way that Catherine was portrayed and how she's like always so calm on the outside and like put together and then on the inside in her exposition I appreciate that she's like anxious and like a little ball of uncertainty and it manifests 100% in wanting- related totally <laughs> and it manifests in like wanting to control things so I just thought this characterization was it was well done and it contributes to like Catherine being like hyper product or like not productive productive is the wrong word but like always trying to do something like she always thinks there's something she needs to be doing right she's always planning and then mm-hmm. is also like hyper competent i guess that's maybe what mm-hmm. i'm saying what i'm thinking about yeah and i guess we also see that she's like having trouble breathing which could be anxiety or panic attacks um and she always like talks about it being her corset but as someone who has had like <laughs> panic attacks before i'm like oh no that's a symptom <laughs> i don't think it's your corset babe <laughs> it's you <laughs> It's you, <laughs> but I did, I did relate to Catherine, not on like the super planning competent thing, but like, even though you are facade. all of those things, thank you. It's, it's a facade, um, <laughs> but like the seeming calm and then inside I'm like, oh my God, I'm like sweating profusely and like my heart is beating and I can't breathe, but it's fine. No one needs to This know. is fine. This is fine. <laughs> this is fine. It's all fine. <laughs> the house is on fire and it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> totally relatable. Um, the last point that I think is uh, important for at least a conversation about ability and disability um, is how this like, and I'm not, I haven't just seen it in this book. I've seen it lots of places calling people who are malevolent or violent or racist or like, I don't know, really have a plan insane and using that as a way to describe their um, bigotry. And the lengths they're willing to go in order to enact it materially. And I just like, I am not here for the like crazy, insane ableism as a way to like, or as labels for, because they're not, they're not actually describing what they're, what you're talking about here. Like a character like Gideon, for Gideon Carr, mm-hmm. for example, because he knows exactly what he's doing. And it's not to say that like people who, you know, have, who are crazy or insane or whatever, don't know what they're doing. But I just like, I'm this language is just everywhere. And it, it 
I don't know, maybe have feelings. Yeah. I mean, it's ableist and also it also takes away, I would say from what Gideon's doing. Like if it's, if it is mental illness then like, let's deal with that, you know, like let's help him, but he knows what he's doing. This is like part of his belief that white people are better men are better and he can do what he wants and he can get away with it like he knows what he's doing this is not a symptom of a mental illness that needs help this is a symptom of white supremacy and also needs help but like who knows if he is redeemable you know he's dead as fuck so well yeah (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i there's um I'll, I'll link to a um, a good resource that I found. It's like a glossary of terms that are just like overtly ableist or like can be ableist depending on how they're used in context. And there's a really um, good glossary that I found. So I'll link to that in the show notes. Finally, it's time for Shipwrecked, a segment about asexuality, sex, rom- wait, asexuality, sexuality, sex, romance, and relationships. And sometimes we take liberties and do some shipping of our own. We just get such good friendship narrative in this story, and it's probably my favorite part. That's the I sexiest love that part of the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Jane and Catherine are best friends, and that's it. And I think that's maybe part of the reason I didn't enjoy the middle parts of the book, because they were separated, and we don't get to see them together. And I guess we get to see like their reconciliation. But I'm like, we, I don't think we needed them to like kind of fall apart. I didn't need that, and I just want them to be BFFs, and it was real sweet. <laughs> They just understand each other and they almost had this like sibling intimacy. Mm -hmm. You can just tell it's like real good friendship where they can say what they mean and they can say hard things to each other and get mad at each other and also share good times. Loved it. Love. Catherine is described as ace. So asexual and aromantic. Um, We get that early on in the book. Page 32 is when it comes up again. I remember this from the previous book too. Um, yeah, I think it was like a side mention, mention, and whatever. You know what I mean. A side note? <laughs> side and mention. A, and a side? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Words. Words. <laughs> um, but I think that was given a little bit more protagonism in this book, which I appreciate it. That she's just like, I am not interested in any of these suitors. And is being like, when Carolina tries to make some comment about like, you can't blame them. You're the prettiest person they've seen in forever. And she's like, maybe they should take up painting instead of proposing to me. Like, go fuck <laughs> those. Like, fuck those guys. Yeah. I just appreciated that she, um, that like everyone is not everyone, but like the people closest to Catherine are respectful of her and just accept her as she is. And, um, that's great. Love to see it. Love the ace and a row uh, representation too. Camaraderie, friendship. It's just so important to find your comrades and co-conspirators. Love it. Like, because Jane and Catherine have other ones like Sue and Carolina. And so I liked the addition of these other like characters to the gang. Um, But Jane and Catherine forever forever now we're going to talk about writing style narration characterization plot structure and basically whatever else comes to mind and kill your darlings so i think we kind of talked about this before but ireland is pulling from history like labor issues between races anti-blackness in different ethnic groups um, the different asian groups that are in california and then the california fires um she does kind of like 
warp these things in a way that I didn't really appreciate. <laughs> but I appreciated seeing these little bits of history that I have learned from like, I took a social justice and youth literature class. And so I'll link to the A Different World for Young People where you kind of learn about the labor issues. Um, also the book, A Few Red Drops. It's about Chicago in particular and like the race riots at that time race slash labor riots um but i appreciated these like little pieces of history throughout the story along with that the i thought the like old-timey vocabulary was immersive um just trying to replicate how one would have talked in the 1860s or 1870s um and my terrible southern accent so i shall not i shall not do any impressions I don't. It's funny because it didn't even feel old timey to me. I was like, this just seems southern. <laughs> well, they, they were, obviously there's some words. Yeah, but. there's like some turns of phrase that mm-hmm. I was just like, wow, this is definitely putting me in like the 1800s, not the 20, not 2020s. Um, yeah, I also listened to the audiobook, which was really well done, and they have different voices for Catherine and Jane, which was nice. Um, but yeah, just I'm like hearing those Southern accents. I'm like, I'm probably starting to talk in a Southern accent after listening to that. You just like revert back. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't read much historical fiction, so it took a minute for me to get into the lexicon again. But I like how co- I thought it was very consistent throughout, in, like how all the chapters are um, like kind of old timey titles, like notes on a whatever or in which I blah. Yeah, you haven't even mentioned the paratext. Like, I are you kidding me? <laughs> I did. It's true. Are you okay? Do I have a? Do you have a fever? Let me, let me, let me feel my forehead Do you have here. COVID? Probably. <laughs> did you lose your sense of paratext? <laughs> did I go to a? Did I go to a party? No, no, fucking, I didn't. Okay. Um, yeah, the paratext. There was a lot of paratext. Yeah, I, for like Catherine, it's like Bible verses, uh-huh. and then for Jane, it was all Shakespeare, which I thought was also funny. Mm-hmm. I liked how it was different paratexts for each of the characters. Um, it was a little heavy-handed for me, not gonna lie. I don't think I needed it. No, I don't think so. Because it, it, well, some of it. Go ahead. Part of it wasn't. Um, part of the reason I like paratext is because it can add to the world building, and um, they were doing that a little bit in the third part or the second part. Where it was, it seemed like the paratext was from like fictionalized manuscripts from the West, westward expansion or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought those were, I liked those a little bit more um, than the Shakespeare Bible verse and Bible verses. But you're right, I didn't mention paratext. It's okay, I got you. <laughs> um, unrelated to paratext but reading about the fear surrounding vaccines was really difficult to read at the moment as people are talking about concerns about COVID-19 vaccines this was really hard for me and I think it pulled me out of the story yeah obviously this book was written well before obviously um yeah it was hard as a person who was chronically ill to read about people being like not trusting vaccines was hard and I know it's coming from the black community as I am a part of that trust your vaccines (laughs) um like it's okay to think uh, critically about the medical industrial complex and at the same time mm -hmm. get a vaccine realize yeah and realize that maybe if we don't it's going to put our community at more risk um than we're already at right now since we do most of the essential work labor Mm -hmm. so um 
get vaccinated when you can, please. Please. I would like to leave my house. <laughs> Someday. We're almost at a whole year, so. Some You know, it's getting day. old. <laughs> That's starting how That's, it's like, I'm just going to be here for indefinite times, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. But I just had to mention that, so I don't know. I'm yeah, not a doctor, but also let's get vaccinated, but also still, you know, hold the medical community accountable for the things that they've done in the past <laughs> or continue to do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Both of those things. Recommend if you like. I think zombie stuff, The Walking Dead TV show, which I don't really enjoy, but I hear people love it. <laughs> um, the Little Monsters movie with Lupita Nyong'o is grade a zombie content it's like really cute and zombie stuff with little kids in it which is funny um i've never heard of this it's on hulu um i think it came out like kind of maybe at the beginning of the pandemic and kind of like didn't get talked about a lot it takes place in australia there's like commentary on like the u.s military having bases in other countries and like fucking shit up um josh gad is in it it, w- it was really good oh. and sweet and funny. Well, I've never heard of this movie. I'm going to go check it out. Yeah, would recommend. <laughs> Aside from zombie things, um, I think if you like a, a badass assassin type protagonist, then you'd probably like these stories. Before we end, it's time for Real Talk. Did reading this book make your perspective change in any way? Or did it make you interrogate a concept, system, or trend that you hadn't before? Lainey's Jingles. I know. <laughs> um, so I'm putting this in real talk because of race, because I think we've talked about it in a few other books and it's been on my mind a lot lately. But I think we need to talk a little bit about white passing as it relates to Catherine and in general. And I think it's been on my mind a lot lately as we see. I think we talked about it a little bit and maybe I don't know what the last book was. I think it was a white Latinx person. Um, Blanca and Roja, think- maybe? Yes, that was it. Blanca and Roja. Um, And Catherine is white passing. um, But I think sometimes this can be like a really complicated issue because, yes, she is black. But at the same time, she enjoys all the privileges of being white if she wants to. And she can kind of like go back and forth between. And I'm a light skinned black person because I'm also biracial. um, And so I'm like kind of in the middle there, you know, like I could not be white passing. No one would ever look at me and think I was white. Um, but it can be kind of frustrating to me that um, like white, when people are white passing and like neglect the fact that they do benefit from white privilege. And so this was like a really frustrating aspect of Catherine for me because she talks about like her annoyance with <laughs> being white passing without, um, really I feel like interrogating the fact that she is benefiting from privilege and I think we I have seen this a lot um from (laughs) white biracial people who like are look white and white Latinx people who you know look white and so this was like a frustrating aspect of Catherine's character a character that I like a lot but I feel like isn't really doing the work to think about like how her being white passing is such a privilege Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a page in uh, or a sentence from Jane's exposition on page seven that um, made me think of exactly what you're talking about. Um, she says, I was sure that that fair skin had never borne the brunt of a lash. And just realizing that, especially um, in the time when this, like even 
like the disparities would have been even greater in the time when this Mm -hmm. book is set, you know, in the 1860s. Um, And that it really does mean that Catherine being white passing means that she doesn't get whipped and she doesn't like face corporal punishment the way that, you know, darker skinned black people do. And that like, she doesn't, experience the same microaggressions and macroaggressions that all of her other dark like you know uh darker skinned black comrades are dealing with yeah and we see this like when she goes to california she has a choice about where she could be she can stay in the like wealthier nicer part of town where white people were be but she chooses to go to the black town which is fine but also like she has a choice that no one else in her group of you know people have and so that part was like really frustrating to me. And it's frustrating to me, like on a daily level anyways, <laughs> like in real life. Yeah. But this was like one of those instances where I was just like, oh my God, Catherine, like you need to really think about this a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. We don't see her having that like self critical or that like awareness of the fact that she's not in as much danger. It's just like a role that she can play. It's like a skin. It's almost like a second skin that she can slip into. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure she puts on her white voice and all that stuff. Um, yeah. And then, like, I get its utility as a survival mechanism, but at the same time, I agree with you that Catherine's not really talking about the material benefits that she gets from being white passing. Yeah. And I think even, like, me, like, a light-skinned person, like, recognizing that I have light-skinned privilege and, like, in in groups of people where there are darker black people, like, letting them be the first ones to talk about issues regarding blackness because like I don't experience the same things as them. And I think that's important for us like all to think about when we think, you know, to, to ensure that we're letting people who might not get the chance to have a voice in these issues um, because like the onus does fall on like the lighter skinned black people to um, be the ones who communicate for the whole group because it's more acceptable to white people. And I think it's important to really push back against them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it it also is, um, I think, just more reason. It it just, like, goes into, like, how whiteness is this fiction that can expand and contract whenever it, like, based on the demands of the, like, hegemonic group, you know? So, like, certain people can have access to whiteness and others can't. But it is like porous, you know, and I think that its porosity is part of its like why it's so hard to root out because it does give benefits if you decide to align yourself with whiteness. For sure. So just yeah, more reason exactly. why we just need to like, like, fuck the fiction of white supremacy. Like, ugh. yeah, exactly. Do you want to talk about the word Negro? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we kind of did. Um I just, the reason this came up is because I was in a, a, like a practice job talk and a colleague who is a professor on the East Coast. Meow. She's being so extra today. I love it. (laughs) She was talking about how um, there was some conversation in one of the spaces that she was in, one of the academic spaces she was in um, about, you know, not white people not saying the word Negro or something. So I don't know. It feels close to the N word, but obviously isn't the same. Um, so I like, I know James Baldwin uses this term a lot and like, I obviously black people like do whatever you want with the language. Like 
you're amazing and like make neologisms and it's just like incredible but like I don't know this this word what do you think I think it's hard whoops I think oh my god Lainey (laughs) please give the mic to Lainey so she can speak on this issue (laughs) she can speak on this issue um I think it's hard because language changes so often and so I think we as black people you know not in my time but would call ourselves negroes and it wasn't you know and then it switched to black and then african-american was accepted and like black was seen as bad and now we see it kind of changing to go back toward being called black um yeah so it's a hard it's a hard one i don't think you should call someone this obviously not (laughs) obviously not i just read it in quotes so yes um i'm a gwp okay (laughs) just kidding (laughs) that was a joke everyone (laughs) but I think it's hard because language changes and um I mean it's hard to expect white people to know all the rules all the time as they continue to change yeah you sometimes you just have to get called out and be like oh actually you can't say that exactly it's like I'll just fuck up and someone will tell me and that's fine yeah and then we did like depending on if you continue to do that we'll decide if we think we can trust you or not (laughs) (laughs) yep so yeah i don't know it's not a word i feel like is used in the modern times Mm -mm. enough for us to really be concerned with it but it could be something that comes back yeah you just got we got to be cognizant yes yeah exactly there's not like a list somewhere you know (laughs) we're not keeping lists of the Um, words that are allowed and not allowed anymore there's no google doc not that i'm aware of all that the black people have made on the internet even (laughs) but not even that for other people as well like it used to be like you couldn't say someone was queer and now that's okay you know like yeah all these things are constantly changing and i think we're very quick to you know to call out people when they fuck up and maybe it should be like a hey i don't know if you knew this but that's not something we're saying anymore or i don't know if you knew this but this is the word we're using instead and then seeing where they go from there like yeah do they change or not and that kind of should determine whether we decide if they're an all right person or not mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> people are going to make mistakes it happens a lot <laughs> yes. i have one final quote for real talk as i do mm-hmm. would you like to read you it want- sure. <laughs> it has um, this word in it yes uh this country does not see or seek to remedy the suffering of the negro and we are taxed to bear the wrath of white inadequacy and that's on page 396 it's just really encapsulates a lot of just like the wrath like the violence of white inadequacy it's very james baldwin-esque it has that that air about it Mm -hmm. i like it that's all i don't know if i have anything else to say (laughs) all right it's cool (laughs) thanks for listening to the library coming We'll be back in two weeks for our last episode of season three. That's that. That's the season we're on, right? I think so. We're reading A Court of Wings and Ruin by Sarah J. Mass. We're finally uh, finishing up that trilogy. So our final episode of the season. Check back in. As always, we'd love to be in conversation with you, magical people. Let us know what you think of the episode, stuff we missed. Say hi by dropping a line in the comments or by reaching out to us on Twitter or Instagram at the Library Coven. You can post or tweet about the show using the hashtag critically reading and the library coven, and you can contact us, contact us via email at the library coven at gmail.com. 
You can subscribe to the Library Coven on the podcast app of your choice, and we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review the show and spread the word to other rad people out there. If you're able to support our library financially, you can make a one-time donation to us on Coffee. You can support us monthly on Patreon in exchange for minisodes, bonus swag, episodes, and more. And you can support us by shopping at our bookshop.org affiliate page. Until next time, stay magical. Kelly is recording on Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho land. Jesse is recording on Peoria, Kaskakia, Payankasha, Weah, Miami, Muscotin, Odawa, Sak, Meskwaki, Kickapoo, Potawatomi, Ojibwe, and Chickasaw land. <laughs>